Well, good morning, everybody. It's good to see you this morning. Uh, Scott said we are wrapping up this series where we've been looking at seven ancient virtues. Uh, This morning, we're going to take a look at love as the last of the seven. And the promise is in 2 Peter 1 that if we will work at building these traits into our lives in increasing ways, that we will grow in our faith, that we'll experience God's presence, God's leading in our life on an ever-increasing basis every single day. So let's look at that passage, a portion of it for one more time, where Peter lists out those virtues. He says, for this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness, to goodness, knowledge, to knowledge, self-control, to self-control, perseverance, and to perseverance, godliness, and to godliness, mutual affection, and to mutual affection, love. Make every effort to add to your faith love. Now, we throw that word around a lot. We use it for a lot of different things, unlike the, the ancients who had multiple words for love. We just say we love things. We love a new dish at a restaurant that we just discovered. We love our brand new car. We love that vacation spot that we discovered. We want to go back to it again and again and again. We use that same word for love also to describe our affection for people in our life. We use it about our friends. We use it about some of our family. We will even talk about that one special person in our life as what? The love of my life. But the love that's encouraged here is different. It's deeper than simply pleasure or physical fulfillment and attraction or family ties. It is richer. It's stronger than that. It's spoken of that way all throughout the New Testament. Colossians, it says, Over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them together in perfect unity. We put on love last because it unites these virtues. It tempers them. It balances them. helps us get it all right. This love has a tenacity, a strength, a fierceness to it that makes this love unique, different. It's the kind of love that will stand with us through all the storms, all the challenges, all the struggles that we're going to face in this life. So there were four or five different words that Peter could have chosen for this love word that we're going to talk about today. And the one that he used, I think if you've hung around church for a while, you may be familiar with, it's the Greek word agape. It'd been around in culture for over 500 years before the gospel writers first picked it up and began to use agape to describe the way that God loves us. And it's a love, as they describe it in scripture, that goes way beyond natural motivations. It is, un- it is without condition. It's unlearned. It's unearned, it's unexpected, it's unannounced, it's unmerited in a person's life. And for this reason, I think it's also really rare in our lives that we experience this complete love that hangs with us. I uh, think that what we most experience is a conditional love. It's a love that has kind of this if-then formula attached to it. And you can really see that come out in kids. They don't have the filters yet 
to mask their emotions or their true feelings. And so it comes out. Uh, some of the newsletters and things that I get in email had some notes at one point from little kids uh, in just this kind of description. Uh, kids will write this kind of note. I love you. Do you love me? Check yes or no. Isn't that cute? I, I had that in the notes, and then I started looking at it closer, and I realized, this may not be a little kid that wrote this. I mean, think about it. Look closely. That note is written not on paper, but on unfinished drywall. There's thumbtacks stuck in around it. So little Sherlock Holmes thinking on my part, the handwriting looks male. I'm going to guess this is a couple who's in the middle of a major remodel in their home, which if that's the case, this is a very valid question to ask in that chaos. With everything going on, do you still love me? I mean, it brings some tension. Some kids have gone high tech with their love notes. This one was especially uh, cleanly typed. Mommy, I love you now 91% because you put a password on the iPad. <laughs> Just letting you know where you stand, Mom. Others are not as clean, but they're clearly as effective as pointing out this conditional love. This one kid wrote, Dear Parents, It seems you are both a little overly strict tonight. Therefore, I do not wish to read with you tonight. But if you change your attitude, I will be glad to. Good night. (laughs) A couple of stray thoughts in my head, just to let you know what goes. I think that kid needs to sleep with one eye open for a while. But he's got a future as a politician or a negotiator somewhere. The last one is probably the clearest example of conditional love. And it says this, you go buy me my Legos today or you're fired, Mommy. (laughs) It says, love, Owen. Yeah, I'm not feeling the love in that note. Are you feeling it? Lots of conditions. And they're typical of the kind of love that we generally experience in life. If you love me back, if you don't do something silly or stupid to forfeit my love, if you're attractive, if you're something, then I'll love you. And ultimately... If those conditions change in an if-then love, the love is withdrawn. The basis for that kind of love is a simple formula. Because I feel this way, I will love you until the conditions change. Agape love completely reverses those terms. With agape love, we choose to love. And the decision is made regardless of any emotion that we might feel. We act ourselves with agape love into a new way of feeling and thinking. It's an amazing love, too, because once the decision is made to love this way, if it's truly this kind of love, it's final. It doesn't go away. It's never withdrawn. Whether it's met with good behavior, loving behavior, or not, we give this love. The simplest way that I know to explain this is Agape is unprovoked love. And normally, we hear about something being provoked, and it has to do with aggression or violence. We might hear it on the news. We might read it in the newspaper. Someone has acted with unprovoked aggression towards a bystander. And when I hear that, immediately in my head, I begin to wonder, what's going on inside of that person that they would do that? Something's broken, something's twisted in them. And this person just happened to be in the right place at the right time to be the recipient of that unprovoked aggression. Agape love works off the same principle, but flips it. 
we think of unprovoked love, and it is the person who does something loving. And we see them and go, there has to be something going on inside of them that makes that possible. Something inside of them that makes them behave counterculturally. Something that accounts for this love, and there is. The Bible says very clearly that we learn this love from one and one only source. We love agape love because God first loved us that way. God loved us. Not based on our worth. Not based on past performance. He loved him based on his character and on his commitment to us. He made the decision. He chooses to love us often in spite of our behavior. Not because of it. Now I'm grateful that Peter says that we have to make every effort to add this love to our faith because it does take work. And the biggest reason that it's hard, that it takes work, is because it has to do with the toughest people we deal with in life. Our toughest relationships are the ones that require agape love. And loving those people can be tough, but if we don't develop that kind of love, we're going to have problems and challenges every time we bump into these people. And we do. They're just there. I think the first type of relationship that we need this love in is we need it for the least of these in our life. It's a phrase that Jesus used in Matthew 25 where he described people in that day who had been loved and said, you've loved the least of these. They're all around us, Jesus says. They're the poor. They're the needy. They're the beggars. They're prisoners. They're hungry. They have needs in their life and they're obvious to us. And they're the people also, because they have needs, or we might even say they're needy, that we tend to step over or step around. We want to just rush by when we encounter them and not make eye contact because eye contact implies we're going to stop and talk. We might have some offer to help them with their needs. Sometimes we do that walking by out of fear. Sometimes we do it because... Their needs are so great that we're just at a loss as to how to help, how to make a difference, how to show love in some tangible way to someone who has needs that great. But I think at the core, in our deepest part of our heart, the needy, the least of these, make us uncomfortable. And it's that awkward, uncomfortable in us, comfortableness in us that causes us to pass them by. And agape love calls us to go against that natural inclination in our lives, to fight back. And the church has done this at different points in history. In AD 61 and AD 251, there were two separate plagues that hit the Roman Empire, and they were devastating. Uh, historians estimate that each time about a third of the entire Roman Empire died because of these plagues. They were massively devastating all across that region. And people everywhere just began to panic. If they had a friend, if they had a relative who'd caught the plague, often they would just take them out to the curb and leave them. Literally, they would dump these people in the streets or they would take them out to the edge of the desert and leave them to die exposed to the elements. During the plagues, nearly everybody panicked, except the church. 
except the people who followed Jesus. They actually made it a point to love with this kind of love. They would see people in the streets and they would pick them up and bring them into their homes. They would care for them, for the poor and the sick and the starving. They would risk their own lives to show agape love. And a lot of them, history records, died in the process of loving like that. Historians and philosophers write about that period. And from that period looking back, they said the world had never seen such a dispensation of grace and money as was organized by the church. Helping those poor, helping the needy, intervening to keep the least of these from being abused and exploited by society. Now, I look back on that era, and I'd, I'd love to imagine that if I were there, I would have been one of those picking people up off the street. But a real gut check causes us to go, I'm not sure. Would I? Or would I have just walked on by? To love the way that God loves calls us to make a deliberate choice. Made out of a recognition of how much we have been loved by God. And then with grateful hearts to extend that same love to the least of these. As tough as it can be to love the least of these, I think it's a little harder even to love this next group of people, the greatest of these. And we need agape love to reach them. Now, these are not people we miss and ignore. These are people we clearly see. We know they're there. And at some level, we resent them. We end up standing in their long shadow as they succeed. Sometimes it's the person who just wears all the clothes you wish you could afford to wear, drives a car you wish you could drive, has the job that you wish you had. It's the person who in some philanthropic endeavor we're in or at work or in some way gets all the accolades and praise that we feel are due to us. And there's something inside of us that this little resentment begins to churn. And it's tough. While we struggle to understand people who are different than us, it's these people, the greatest of these, who really challenge and threaten us in life. Because they're just like us, only a little bit better. The best and worst examples of this kind of love coming to the greatest of these comes in 1 Samuel. And if you read through parts of 1 Samuel, especially around chapter 20, what you find is that Israel had its first king and his name was Saul. But as his reign was beginning to decline, as his popularity was declining, God had anointed this scrawny little shepherd boy named David to become king and take his place. And Saul reacted to David's growing popularity with resentment, with rage, and with envy. And eventually it led him to dark places that none of us will go because he attempted to take David's life multiple times to satisfy that rage and envy within him. That's absolutely conditional love. The interesting thing is that Saul had a son named Jonathan who was the heir, the rightful heir to the throne. And Jonathan had a lot more to lose than Saul did. When David became king, Jonathan would lose all of his power, all of his prestige. He would lose all of the influence and the wealth 
that he had accumulated through his family. The toughest part, though, for Jonathan was that as David's praise was growing, Jonathan was doing the exact same things. Jonathan and David were both great leaders militarily. Jonathan had aspirations. He was a great leader. He was a great soldier. The problem was, David just did everything that Jonathan did a little bit better. And he garnered all the accolades along the way. Jonathan, in his life, had a tough choice, similar to what we'll face. Jonathan had the choice. Do I love like my father did, with a love that turned into envy and rage and murder attempts? Or do I choose the love that God has? And he chose that. Jonathan took the high road. Instead, he loved David and he cheered David on. Even became David's protector when Saul tried to kill him. The scriptures have some beautiful phrases about this really tight friendship that grew between Jonathan and David. It says, Jonathan loved David as he loved himself. And even at one point, they come into this conversation about it. And they're talking about the awkwardness and the struggle of David being anointed and Jonathan being the heir. And Jonathan just flat out says it. He says, look, you are going to be the king of Israel and I will be second to you. That's love. So as you think about your life this morning, let me ask, is there somebody like that in your life who just outshines you a little bit? Who is your David in your life? And how will you choose to relate to them? The way Saul did? Or will you be a Jonathan? Because our tendency is towards what Saul did. Rather than jealousy or resentment, we're called to inflict agape love on the greatest of these. God wants to turn our feelings of resentment and envy and anger and whatever it is that's bubbling up inside of us, He wants to turn them into unprovoked love if we're willing to let Him do His work in our heart. Loving the person who is just a little better than us, who one-ups us, is tougher than loving the least of these, but it is not nearly as tough as this third group of people, the worst of these. Agape love is supremely needed in these relationships in our life. You have every right to resent and despise these people. These are the people who hurt us. They betray us. They take something from us. These are the people who exploit us. And worst of all, it's intentional the majority of the time. They're what Scripture calls our enemies. And we know exactly who those people are. It will take our best effort, coupled with God's grace and working in our hearts, to learn to love those people. Because their actions provoke a lot of things in us, but it's not love that's generally one of them. And so God has to do the work to help us love people who have in every way forfeited their right to be loved in our lives. It's one of these tough places for me in my walk with God is to love those people. But Jesus was really, really clear about it. That he was turning the tables on this. We have to love this way. 
He said in Matthew 5, you're familiar with the old written law, love your friend, and its unwritten companion, hate your enemy. I'm challenging that, Jesus said. I'm telling you to love your enemies. Let them bring out the best in you, not the worst. Make that choice. And when somebody gives you a hard time, respond with the energies of prayer, for then you are working out of your true selves, your God-created selves, because that's what God does. He gives his best, the sun to warm and the rain to nourish to everyone, regardless, the good and the bad, the nice and the nasty. And if you do all this, I'm sorry, if, you, if all you do is love the lovable, how do you expect a bonus? Any run-of-the-mill sinner, can do, anybody can do that. If you simply say hello to those who greet you, do you expect a medal for that? Any run-of-the-mill sinner does that. In a word, Jesus says, what I'm saying to you is grow up. You are kingdom subjects. Now live like it. Live out your God-created identity. Live generously and graciously towards others the way that God loves you and lives toward you. Loving the beautiful and the kind and the generous people in our lives, that's easy. Everybody does that. What sets Jesus' followers apart is that we don't follow our natural inclinations. We follow Him. And we extend this unprovoked love to the least of these, to the greatest of these. And even though it's hard, to the worst of these. I think this love may be last in Peter's list because it's the toughest. It's the pinnacle. And we will struggle the most to add that virtue to our faith. This unconditional, unprovoked agape love, I think, is also going to be the reason that we shed a lot of tears in our life. A lot of people don't understand it when it starts to happen. When you begin to show that unprovoked love, they make fun of you when you do it. Some people will actually see it as a sign of weakness and use it as an opportunity to take advantage of us when we show agape love. Others are just run over us. Some of them are going to think we're sadly mistaken, try to correct us or at least criticize us for the choices we make. It's not easy. But it's the call that God places on our life as we follow Him. It's not easy but we can agape love because it's the same love that God showed to us first. So I have a challenge for you this week. I hope you're up to it. And it may cause some of us to behave radically different than we've been behaving recently. But I think that radically different life is what we're looking for. Here's the challenge. To pray that God will show you some person, some group, a place where you need to exhibit unprovoked love to the least of these, to the greatest of these in your life. And if you're really up for the challenge, (laughs) to find the worst of these and show them love. And be creative. It can start with simple steps. You can buy their coffee. 
You can help them on a project that they're working on. You may actually just speak to them for the first time in a long, long time. And if you need some time to build up to it, pray about it, get the courage to love the worst of these, start praying how God's going to help you clean the snow off their windows. It's not that far away. Take a step this week. Take a risk and take a step towards unprovoked love. Not because the person in your life has earned it. Not because something radically different has changed in their life. Not because they've proven that they're going to be different. This unprovoked love calls us to love regardless. Through the ups and the downs that come in relationships. And we do it as a choice because of the way that God loves us. The grace he has extended to us. And we do it not with a grumbling spirit, but with gratitude for all that God is doing to heal us, to change us, to make us whole. And I'm convinced that if we can learn to do that individually and collectively as a church, there is no limit to what God will do in us and through us as we love this way.